We're continuing this week with our look at great themes of the Bible through the lens of the book of Daniel. And uh, as Carmen said, the theme we've been exploring is really how do God's people maintain faith and hope in a hostile world? And I did think about preaching something different because of the, the, the situation that we're all in. But I wanted to continue with this series for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it's good to bring some consistency to the shifting sands of the circumstances surrounding the COVID-19 outbreak. And also because as it happens this week, we're looking at a prayer of Daniel's, which addresses how we should react when we find ourselves in unfavorable situations, which are not our fault. And I thought, well, okay, that seems apt. Um, before I continue though, you guys can, can step down. I just think they're camera hogs, they didn't want to leave. Thank you, you've done a great job. Um, so as, as, as they leave the stage, I just want to um, sort of talk about the story so far. Um, uh, before, before, I do, before I do that, I just want to let you know that if, if you're following this in your Bible, because the, uh, the screening app has a, uh, an online Bible tab in there, you can actually uh, read that on your screen, or if you've got a separate device with an online Bible, use that. It's probably a bit easier than uh, trying to read it from the screen behind me, especially if you're using a phone. Um, and so if you want to prepare yourselves uh, to follow uh, the scripture I'm using, uh, it will be Daniel chapter 9 and from verses 1 to 19. So you can get ready for that, um, and so you can be on the ball when we continue. Uh, and so quickly recapping the story, uh, we've been following Daniel and his friend, friends through their capture by the kingdom of Babylon and their subsequent struggles to maintain their commitment to God uh, while t being totally immersed in Babylonian society, uh, a society which is totally at odds with their faith. Walking the knife edge of faith brings them into confrontation with the rulers of Babylon whose, whose behaviour reinforces the tragic outcomes that stems from humans elevating their ambitions, achievements and culture to divine status. Now one thing we haven't really touched on is why and how Daniel and his friends are sitting in exile. I mean, we know they were taken captive, but how did that happen? Why did that happen? And how does Daniel view his circumstances? Well, if we want a short answer, basically Daniel's ancestors were dropkicks. Um, they've been in a, I mean, we could leave it there, um, but they've been in a covenant relationship with their God Yahweh for 400 years. And for most of this time, they have just utterly failed to keep their terms of the covenant, and they've lived in rebellion to Yahweh for most of that time. And so he puts up with this for four centuries. That's a long time. But eventually, God orchestrates Israel's downfall for their four centuries of rebellion, and that's what lands Daniel and his friends in Babylon. So here's Daniel in a horrible situation, but Daniel himself, is he a good guy or a bad guy? I mean, most of you have read the story of Daniel, he, he's a good guy. Uh, the story of, you know, we've got Daniel in the lion's den and his, his friends in, in the fire, they're, they're all good, faithful people. And so just stop and put yourself in his shoes. You've been as faithful as it's possible to be to the God of Israel, and yet you're sitting in Babylon through no fault of your own. It's actually because of the prolonged failure and rebellion and moral compromise of your ancestors that you're sitting there. So how do you feel about life? How do you feel about it after a decade, two decades, 
about six decades. And every day is a battle trying to be faithful in a foreign land. He hasn't done anything wrong. And it would be very easy for him to adopt this kind of righteous martyr mentality or a, a victim mentality of here I am, my whole family's screwed up and it's because of them that I landed here. It becomes an us and them mindset which can very easily form in God's faithful few. But as we turn to this prayer of Daniel today, it's exactly the opposite mindset that he adopts. I think that his prayer gets us into the spiritual heart of what it means to be faithful to God in exile, but without ever distancing ourselves from the culture that is against us. You ready to dive in? Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now, by the chronology that we've been following in the book of Daniel, the phrase that we read here where it says, um, in the first year of Darius, this tells us that we're now some 50 to 60 years into the exile. So Daniel has transitioned from the young man we met earlier to a guy close to my age. Uh, so he's still young. And uh, so he's, he's been there a while. So he starts to, to, to wonder, how long is this going to last? And so he does the sensible thing. He opens his Bible looking for answers. And he learns from Jeremiah that the desolation of Jerusalem was going to last 70 years. And he's reading this from chapter 25, verse 11, which in Jeremiah says, the entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighbouring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So Daniel reads this and he thinks, hey, there's hope yet. I may make it back to Jerusalem. It'll probably be in a wheelchair, but there's hope. And so this motivates him to do something and we're going to see that from verse 4 on. So pay attention, read your Bibles. This is going to take a while. I'm going to read the whole of Daniel's prayer because it's an awesome prayer. So listen closely. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. So he's pretty down on himself here. He says, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered in shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. So he's laboring the point here. He's trying to get across to God that he understands that the people of Israel have done the wrong thing. And he says, therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. 
You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Hooray! Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and the petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Whoa, that's some prayer. Now, there's, there's two things. I mean, we could talk for hours about that. And uh, I'd love to, except I'm sure after a couple of minutes I'd be talking to myself. Um, but I just want to talk about two things in this prayer. There's something at the heartbeat of this prayer, and that's Daniel's view of God's character. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, what is the mindset that Daniel has behind the confessional tone of this prayer? And these two things together help us understand why Daniel doesn't view himself as this victim slash martyr. And so, if you've been listening, what aspect of God's character did Daniel emphasise in this prayer? He mentions it four times. Now, I'm not going to wait for people to put it in the comments section, but you can if you like. Um, the word he uses four times is righteousness. And so, if we can grasp the true meaning of this word righteousness or righteous, it'll help us not only understand why Daniel is praying this particular prayer, but also how the word relates to our own understanding and outworking of righteousness. In his prayer, Daniel asserts that God is righteous and his people are not. And I think most of us would probably agree with that statement, but most of us agree for the wrong reason. Uh, have you noticed we don't, we don't ever use this, this word except in religious circles. You don't go around talking about the righteous people you work with um, or, or the, the righteous people at home or anything like that. We don't use the word righteous except in religious circles. And so we've corrupted its meaning. Most Christians have this idea that righteousness is an intrinsic quality that a person has or aspires to. But God is not righteous just because he's God. Don't turn off. The Hebrew word for righteousness, it's sedek. And its meaning is probably more closely related to another English phrase that we don't use often anymore, but I think we all understand. And that is to be in right standing with someone. We don't talk about us being in right standing with people, but I think if somebody said that to you, you'd know what they meant. And it's interesting to notice that to be in right standing involves somebody else. 
To be a righteous parent, for instance, would involve loving your children, disciplining them, playing with them, teaching them manners, reading them bedtime stories, and tucking them into sleep. That makes you a righteous parent. Hands up all, no, don't worry. (laughs) But if as a parent, you are also a business owner, treating your employees righteously would probably not involve bedtime stories. (laughs) Rather, your employees would think you were righteous if you provided a safe and pleasant work environment, you provided appropriate training and adequate pay and benefits to make their life easier. And so Daniel calls God righteous because God has honoured his covenant with the people of Israel. God's people are unrighteous because they have not kept their part of the covenant at all, basically. And so we need to understand that righteousness is all about relationship. You cannot actually be righteous by yourself. Daniel says in his prayer that God has done right by Israel by bringing disaster on them for their 400 years of rebellion. And this is not doing right as a parent or an employee. This is the righteousness of a judge. For example, if you're here watching the service here today and uh, outside your car is being stolen, somebody takes it away and tortures it and you're pretty upset. But they catch the perpetrator and it goes to court and in court the judge says, well, the evidence is clear. In this case, you are guilty without a doubt but you are probably having a bad day so pay a $20 fine you're free to go. Now, has that judge done right by you? or the community as a whole, by letting that person go with hardly any consequences. No, it's not Zedek. So for a judge to show righteousness actually means bringing serious consequences on evil and destructive behaviour. Because, and so Daniel can say that Jerusalem was destroyed because God is righteous, and he's quite correct. But it wouldn't, because it wouldn't be good on God's part if he just let Jerusalem continue in rebellion without any accountability. But the thing is that that's not the end of God's righteousness. Because Daniel goes on to say, listen, Lord, so just because you are righteous to bring justice, I'm also asking you now, because you're righteous, to forgive us. Not because we're righteous. I'm asking because you're the kind of God who does right by people. You brought consequences on our evil, and now because you do right by people, forgive us. His head's spinning a bit. So God's righteousness compels him to bring justice, but God's righteousness also apparently compels him to forgive and restore. God's righteousness is his justice and his mercy because he promised that that's what he would do. They're not in contradiction to each other. They actually work perfectly together. And this is the second thing in Daniel's prayer that's significant because think about it. Whose sin is he confessing? Well, it's not his, it's his ancestors. And even though he could be tempted to throw a pity party and view himself as morally superior and create this this us and them distance between him and his ancestors, he does exactly the opposite when he sees the beauty and the perfection and the generosity of God's character. He humbles himself and views himself as a participant in this huge mess that he's a part of. He may have contributed to it in a way that's different than the people who sacrificed their children in Jerusalem and worshipped idols. But yet before the goodness and the generosity of God's righteousness, he steps back, humbles himself and says, 
Yep, it's our mess. And how is it you know that someone has truly got a grasp of God's righteousness? They're humble. They don't view themselves as better than other people. Even though Daniel's trying to be faithful to God in a foreign land, he never points the finger. He never accuses, blames, or makes himself look better than others, believers or unbelievers. A true grasp of God's character humbles God's people. And it doesn't matter that Daniel didn't sacrifice children or worship idols. He steps in line with his whole ancestry and he says, we've sinned, we are participants and contributors to the horrors of this world. Now this is not something that happens a lot in a Western self-idolizing culture. But there are a couple of instances that spring to mind. Now the first one is that on the 13th of February 2008, our Prime Minister Kevin Rudd issued a formal apology on behalf of the government and the Australian people for the mistreatment of the country's indigenous peoples throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Now some people were outraged because they found it insulting to have to apologise for something they personally were not part of. You heard people say, well, my forebears weren't even in Australia when that happened. Um, I've always stood up from the underdog. Why should I apologise? I'm one of the good guys. Or other people, well, that's all just history now. Why are we worrying about stuff that happened in the past? We, we should just forget it and move on. And th there are all sorts of comments that were made. But Kevin Rudd was wise enough, possibly a rare moment, uh, to understand that we all participate and contribute to the way the world is, for good or bad. And therefore, it's healthy for us to recognise that we are no more righteous than our ancestors. And there are times that we need to humble ourselves on their behalf and acknowledge our sin. The second one is right here, right now. Our current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic. What could be closer to Daniel's situation? Here we find ourselves in a confusing, frightening and potentially life-threatening situation that is not our fault. It's somebody else's fault and we're the victims of their stupidity, carelessness, ignorance, criminal negligence. Pick one and position yourself as the victim and have a pity party. Or we can take the morally superior position. At least we don't eat bats. I wouldn't travel if I was sick. Look at those stupid people stockpiling toilet paper. Who are all the idiots buying the pasta and the rice? Why are people so frightened? Why are people ignoring the medical guidelines? Where is your faith? Where is your common sense? There are all of these things that people are throwing around. And the trouble is that we too are contributors to our society. And don't forget, this is a society that beats up Chinese students because they may be carrying the coronavirus. We are participants in a culture that uses social media to shame a mother of 16 kids because she brought eight rolls of toilet paper as part of her weekly shop because self-righteous people thought she was hoarding. Our righteousness is determined by how we treat others. And while we're often eager to bring down the hammer of God's justice on people, we are amazingly reluctant to offer that same righteous mercy, grace and restoration, especially to those we feel are less righteous than us. God brings this full circle in his response to Daniel's prayer. And unfortunately, we don't have 
time to, to go into that response. There are, there's probably at least two or three, three of you out there who are, are itching for me to go into the prophetic consequences of what God re- responds to. Um, but for the rest of you out there, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, we're not going to go into that. Uh, the basics of what happens is that, remember Daniel's after confirmation from God that the exile of 70 years was going to be enough to deal with Israel's sin and atone for their evil ways. He confesses Israel's sin to God as his own, even though he's a righteous man, and he accepted God's justice while expecting God's mercy. And although we don't have time to read it now, God tells Daniel through the angel Gabriel that the 70 years is just not going to cut it. That there's something yet to happen in the future where God's justice and mercy and righteousness will meet perfectly together to deal with evil. Does this sound like something we're familiar with? I hope so. Because the death of Jesus on the cross is precisely the moment where humanity's sin is exposed and the only hope that we have is that God's righteousness will deal with our evil in a way that doesn't destroy us but saves us. And this is the good news. The good news that we hope for. And so what actually happens on the cross is that God deals with our evil. He shoulders it himself. He actually absorbs it into himself so he can give us as a gift his own life and forgiveness and mercy. That is the good news of the cross. Our own version of righteousness can never save us. It's only God's righteousness that can save us. And that's what allows a community of Jesus followers sitting in homes across Adelaide to pray for the tragedy of this pandemic and to fully own and recognise our part in it and yet still go out this week believing that there's good news for our world. It's not because we are righteous and it's not because somehow we're better. It's because God is righteous, which means that he is just and he is committed to restoring our world. And as we confront this crisis, there are ways in which we all have failed in some way. There are ways that we've all been inconsistent and that we were compromised as followers of Jesus. And these are all the ways we've contributed to the world and the way it is. And the right response to that is to confess. The right confession is that we need Jesus. I want to close with a prayer of confession today on behalf of everyone watching and listening. Now normally, I would ask you to repeat it after me, but I won't be able to tell and there could be somewhat of a delay, so I think we're going to do away with that. But there will be an opportunity on your feed to actually respond to this prayer. If this is a prayer that you've never responded to before, I encourage you to respond. And if you just feel that you need prayer in these times that you actually want to acknowledge the fact that your righteousness has been compromised mainly because you've trusted in your own righteousness and forgotten to trust in God's then just respond with a, with a thumbs up or a, a, an accept, acceptance button I'm not exactly sure what is actually at your end but I just want you to bow your heads and listen And with your own heart, confess to God your shortcomings. 
So Lord, we confess to living out of our own righteousness. But today, we want to change our confession. Jesus, we confess that we need you. Today, we accept you as our Lord and Saviour. And we put our trust in your righteousness and not our own. Amen. Thank you for your time this morning. I hope that this has encouraged you. I hope that this has actually brought a word that has touched you. I pray that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning through my words and that you are sitting there, standing there, eating your donut, drinking a cup of coffee with a fresh outlook and a new hope to face the world tomorrow. Thank you.